You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Keep your mental health muscles strong with the Emotional Badass Podcast. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, psychotherapist, and life coach. The Emotional Badass Podcast is your place to learn the mental health tips and tricks you need to build emotional resilience and practice mindfulness and gratitude. Join me every week for new episodes to reach a more grounded state of well-being as life brings its challenges. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. I hope that all of you listening out there are doing well, staying safe, and feeling empowered not only with your money, but in all areas of your life. And I want to let all of our listeners know before we dive in today that we're going to be tackling the sensitive and important topic of financial abuse, which may be difficult for some of you. This episode is dedicated to ensuring that all of our listeners are able to get to a safe and secure place with their money, including those who may be facing or who have faced financial abuse. When you hear the term abuse, perhaps you have an image in your mind of domestic abuse, one that's physical or verbal, and these forms of abuse can absolutely be related. Controlling a partner's finances is one of the most effective ways of keeping someone trapped, keeping them powerless in a relationship. And when financial abuse is happening, it is not always easy to identify because it can look different in every relationship. In some cases, the abuser may deny their victim access to income or monitor every penny that they spend. In others, the abuser may limit their partner's access to information about or even use of the family finances. They may prevent them from working or may coerce them into taking out loans or credit cards. In a domestic violence survey from Mary Kay, three out of four victims said they stayed with their abusers longer for economic reasons. Nearly 70% Wrap your brains around that for a second. 70% of millennial women say they have experienced financial abuse by a romantic partner. 
and a staggering 99% of people in abusive relationships experience financial abuse, according to the National Network to End Domestic Violence. And financial reasons are often cited by victims of abuse as the main reason that they stayed with or returned to an abusive partner. To help us walk through this important topic today, to help us really understand it, is Katie Hood. She is CEO of the One Love Foundation. It's a nonprofit devoted to educating young people on healthy and unhealthy relationships and preventing relationship abuse. One Love's award-winning film-based peer-to-peer educational workshops have reached more than a million and a half young people in person, and over a hundred million people have engaged with their campaigns online. Previously, Katie was CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's, and she has an MBA from Harvard Business School. We're also so honored to be joined today by a woman who's going to share her story with us, her story of the financial abuse that she endured and was eventually able to escape. Her name is Rebecca, and to protect her anonymity, we're just going to stick with her first name only today. So Katie and Rebecca, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. We're so glad to be here. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So I'd like to start by getting to know both of you just a little bit. Katie, let's kick it off with you. Tell me a little bit about your background and what you do at One Love. Yeah, so I've been at One Love now for seven years. I started out in the business world, actually. I worked in investment banking for a couple of years, realized that wasn't really for me, and really found my way to the nonprofit sector. You know, Even though I, I have a business degree, an MBA, I was always really interested in how nonprofits and social enterprise can help solve major problems that our world's facing. So my first opportunity to do that was at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And I was there in 2010 when Yardley Love was killed. Yardley's death is what spawned the start of One Love, which was created in her honor. But within a few years, I had actually left the Michael J. Fox Foundation and really realized that this cause and this issue of preventing abuse and changing the stats and the norms that enable unhealthy relationships and abusive relationships to exist was one that was super personal to me and incredibly important to me as a friend, as a sister, as a, as a parent, as you name it. I originally was introduced to One Love because one of my closest friends is Yardley Love's cousin. And so I had lived through this experience with them of trying to come to terms with how the worst possible thing had happened and realizing that there were signs there that an expert would have understood, but there were no experts in the room. And so the signs are missed and the people that would have known what to do weren't there. So One Love's mission today is really to make sure that all of us understand the signs of a healthy and an unhealthy relationship, to really normalize a conversation among friends and peers about what relationship health is and why it matters, and ultimately to end relationship abuse and create a world where we can all love better. So it's to say, I'm also a mom of four, and to say that I feel incredibly blessed to work on a cause that truly, like you were talking about the stats around financial abuse, but the stats around abuse generally are staggering. I mean, it's over one in three women and nearly one in three men, and one in two trans folks will be in abusive relationships in their lifetime, and yet it's not something we're taught to really talk about, and that's what we're trying to change. 
before we move on, can you just tell me very briefly for those people who don't remember about Yardley and a little bit about her story? Sure. Uh, Yardley Love was a fourth year student at the University of Virginia. She was a Division I college athlete, lacrosse player. And on May 3rd, 2010, she was beaten to death by her ex-boyfriend, who was also a lacrosse player at the University of Virginia. My personal story that day is that I was home on maternity leave with my third child. I would have otherwise been at work. And I got a call saying, you need to get to Sharon's house because her cousin's been killed. And so I remember that morning almost in slow motion. Nobody knew she was at risk. I guess that's the easiest way to put it. People knew there was trouble. They'd broken up. It was an off and on relationship. There was It was a passionate relationship. The highs were high, the lows were low, but nobody was really calling it abuse. And certainly nobody understood the danger she was in. But in the days and weeks and months that followed, as people, as her family, as her friends started talking more, they realized that lots of people had seen lots of different things, but nobody was putting it all together. And honestly, people didn't know what to do, so they didn't do anything. And that is just far too common an occurrence. It's pretty much textbook. You know, you read cases all the time. Now, once you're in this work, you pay a lot of attention to the stories that come out about abused women or people who've been killed. And nearly all the time, people say, I just didn't understand what I was seeing. We're going to dig into how to recognize that. But before we do, Rebecca, you're so brave to be here and to talk with us. Thank you. What inspired you to share your story? Part of me getting my story out is not just an, an incredible healing process, being able to put down in writing or to be able to speak about what I went through, but it's also to help other women because I'm realizing now that I've been saved, but there's a whole lot who haven't, but there's a whole lot more I can save. And that's really why I am here today. Well, thank you for that. We don't hear as much about financial abuse as we do many other types of abuse. How would you define it, Katie? In your introduction, you talked about power and control and an abusive relationship at the essence, power and control, a desire to power and control a partner is really at the core. So a desire to control your partner. That could be emotionally and psychologically. That could be physically. That could be sexually. Financial abuse is just using money and resources and assets to exert that power and control. So that could be, you gave a lot of good examples, but restricting the amount of money you have access to it could be tracking every expense of the fine-tooth comb. It's really about controlling your partner through access to resources or lack thereof. What did it look like in your situation, Rebecca? The financial abuse happened in many different stages. Each stage was just a little different. I would have to say the um, separation divorce was the worst of all of it. But each stage had its own difficulty, its own trial. And it started out with becoming socially isolated. I mean, there, it was more than just financial abuse in my situation. But, you know, I, I struggled with being socially isolated. I was isolated from my family. I was isolated from friends. There were things that I couldn't do, places I couldn't go. Our marriage started in the era of the paper phone bills. So when we moved away from home, why do you spend 20 minutes with your mom? Why did you call your mom on this day? What exactly did you talk about? You know, so a lot of the power and control that was being established over me and that social isolation really played in to the financing. And so as it started, the finances were split sort of fairly evenly until 
he applied to go to grad school and things changed at that point in time significantly. Things changed because when he went to grad school, he was earning more or because you were supporting you? Bingo. I was supporting everyone and I didn't know it. So we moved close to 300 miles away from our initial location to where the graduate school was. And you're looking for a place to stay, looking for a home. We found it was cheaper to buy something, to buy a house than it was actually to rent an apartment. So we bought a house and I had secured a job first. So I put the house in my name. Cars ended up going in my name. Everything went in my name. And as soon as the graduate work started, the response was, I'm not working. I'm not going to work. My ex-husband's response was, my job is to go to school. You have to provide everything. And for the purpose of this, I'm going to tell you my income so that you really have the shock value of it. I was making $24,000 a year. Oh, my goodness. And we had gone from something that was almost three times that. I moved to an area where the maximum I could make was $24,000, $25,000 versus the thirty plus I had been making previously. So I was making $24,000 a year with a house in my name, cars in my name, found out I was pregnant. So for three years, I supported three people on $24,000 a year without much help at all. I was eligible to get WIC. But because there was an eligible male in the household and that eligible man refused to work, I was not eligible for anything else. So it was a very difficult, very challenging time. And at that point in time, there was nothing. We had an extraordinary amount of debt because you can't do this on 24000 a year. You just can't. You were saying, Katie, it's so difficult to recognize what's an abusive situation. It can be difficult to identify. I'm sure people who look at situations from the outside never know what's going on in a marriage and especially don't know what's going on in a person's financial life. How do you recognize it from within and how do you recognize it from without? Well, I think that the value of hearing stories and specific examples like Rebecca's sharing right now is that you. I think we all can feel in our guts how this would unfold. How suddenly what you thought was happening is something different, is something different, is something different. And then it's like bigger than you even know what to do with. And the only thing you can focus on is putting one foot in front of the other. Because at this point, I think the isolation was a really important part. I I always talk about isolation. It is Mm -hmm. the most frequently misunderstood sign when it comes to how friends see a situation. When I watched our film Escalation for the first time, What made the film personal to me was not that I'd been in an abusive relationship, but I saw how the girl was isolated from her support group, friends and family. That tethering of a person away from the support and to you makes everything else from there on possible. So what I know about stories like Rebecca's is frequently when you find yourself in the situation, and I know we've talked a little bit, she had an inkling this wasn't right. But at this point, her family felt like she'd walked away from them she'd been isolated from her friends, who was she going to go to? She had a baby. She just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other. So my number one piece of advice to all of us is don't make the assumption that when a person walks away, they are choosing to walk away. They may have a partner who is requiring this of them. And the most important thing a friend or family member can do is just maintain the support. And that can be really hard to do. On average, it takes a person in an abusive relationship seven times to break up with their partner before they leave. 
by the time it's clear, it's so clear to the friend, but it doesn't mean it's easy to get out of. So when it comes to financial abuse, you're, it's a little bit more complicated because you're right. We don't really have transparency into our friends' finances and this and that. But if you have a friend, and I think Rebecca has some examples about this, who regularly can or cannot RSVP for things to the last minute or participate, go out to dinner with the girls, for example, you know, pay attention to these things. Like how much autonomy does this person really have over their you know, ability to use the resources in their marriage or their partnership. And I think it's just really important to pay attention to those signs and to open up the opportunity for conversation, which is friends tend to, when they finally do wake up and have concerns, they tend to come and attack directly at the partner. I don't know why you're with that person. They're such a loser or they treat you badly. If you're in an abusive relationship, like you don't want to engage in that conversation. You've been told by your partner that nobody wants you together, that your family and friends don't like them. It's us against the world sort of mentality. So you're just feeding into that narrative. Instead, you want to say things like, you used to love going to our gym class together and now you don't come anymore. That would make me really sad. I just want to keep the line of communication open, make it about the shared experiences that are no longer happening and keep that relationship connected as much as you can. Rebecca, what did it take for you to break free of your situation and how, well, if we focus on the finances, because I mean, $24,000 a year, not enough to live on for one person, let alone two or three. How did you do it? Well, it took 20 years. It took over 20 years. So a lot transpired from those early years to the end years, it wasn't the finances that made me break free. It was basically life or death. And I had to choose life. And that's what broke me out. The financial aspect did not hit me until much later. The financial abuse did not dawn on me until all the restrictions were there until the budget was there, until the I'm using child support money because I'm still a part of the family was there, to I'm only going to give you $200 at any given time and you're going to have to beg me for money to, to pay for the electric bill. You'd better not be eating from my hard-earned money. Where is your paycheck, Rebecca? My money is my money, but your money is our money. I mean, huge. <sighs> right. So... The financial aspect did not hit me until much later after the separation. I want to say within maybe two, three months, it hit me hard. And then it took maybe, I don't even know how many months after that to become a little bit more secure. But then it took a very long time for me to become independent. Do you think it's fair to say, Rebecca, just having known your story, sorry to step in, that it's one piece of your puzzle. Like some of the stuff you were dealing with was so much more acute. This was just like the way it was in your household. Right. Is that what you mean by it wasn't really clear? Yeah, exactly. And so one of the instances I had was when my ex was in grad school, he went to a conference and he flew out to the Midwest. I don't even know what it was for. I don't even know why. I don't even remember having the discussion that he was going. But he wiped out the bank account. And when I say wiped out, it said zero dollars. Mm. And I had to pick my son up from daycare and I owed $400 to daycare. I mean, they were let me pick him up because they're, you know, they're <laughs> not going to keep your child. But I didn't have $400. I had nothing to give them. And nothing. I couldn't even take an advance out on a credit card because everything was maxed out. I had nothing to offer them. And I sat down at my boss's office and just sobbed. And she said, we're going to the bank now. She had written a check for cash 
for $500. She handed me $500. She said, four of it pays for your daycare. A hundred is to make it through the weekend. She said, and, but you got to get rid of them. And this was 2002. You have to get rid of them. So when he called or whatever have you that evening, I just said, you know what? You're not welcome in the home anymore. I said, this house is actually owned by me. That means I have possession of the home. It is mine. Your name's not on it. I don't even have to share it with you. I don't have to split it with you. Nothing. You're not welcome. I've already packed your things and you can pick them up when you get back. And he basically lost it. I don't know what all he said. I really wasn't listening. But it was like the strongest thing I'd ever done in my life, the most empowering thing that I had done up to that point. And he said, you know, later on that weekend, he said, all right, I've got a job. I've got a job. I'll come back to the house. He didn't really ask if it was okay. He just like, I'll come back to the house. I'll sleep on the couch, but I've got a job. And within, I would say three to five weeks, he was making three times the amount of money I was making. Three times the amount of money I was making. And he had the capability of doing it all along, but it, it took me kicking him out to do it, which of course then once he was making the money and that was really stable, it was now you can stay home and you can be a mom, whatever else you want to be, but you can stay home. I'm providing everything. So he was like, this is my payback to you because you supported us for three years. I'm going to support you for the rest of your life. That's how he worded it. And so then I was able to stay home, which I thought was a blessing. And that was until I said, you know what? I think the kids are old enough. I'd like to go back to work. I'd like to do something. And that's when the real chaos pretty much started. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Emotional Badass is the weekly mental health and wellness podcast dedicated to empowering you with the emotional education so many of us crave. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, a psychotherapist with expertise in talk therapy, personal growth, and therapeutic healing. Join me every week on the Emotional Badass podcast as we delve into the heart of emotional wellness, tackling topics from stress management and coping strategies to the nuances of being highly sensitive. We navigate life's challenges, uncover the subtleties of gaslighting and manipulation, and confront narcissism head on. All the while, we learn to forge healthy boundaries that enrich both our personal and romantic relationships. With brand new content every Sunday and over 300 past episodes in our archive, there's something for everyone. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking 
with Katie, CEO of One Love, and Rebecca about her personal story of financial abuse. When we turn to the topic of helping ourselves and helping others, let's just start by looking inward. What can we do as individuals to protect ourselves from this sort of situation and from this sort of abuse. Katie, the word autonomy came up earlier. I think there's a lot buried in that. Yeah. So I would say, as you said earlier, financial abuse occurs in 99% of abusive relationships. So when you ask the question, financial abuse, finances are just another tool to exert control, as we were talking about. So when you say, how do you avoid financial abuse? It's really, how do you avoid abuse? And the first thing I truly believe in my heart is that knowledge is power. At One Love, our approach is around going early to young people and really establishing with them the 10 signs of healthy and unhealthy relationships. We started just teaching about unhealthy because the unhealthy can become abuse. The number one question young people asked us was, how do I help a friend? In doing our program, they realized they had friends their age, this is teenagers, they were already in abusive situations. But the second question is, what does healthy look like? So to specifically answer your question, understanding the signs of healthy and unhealthy relationships and actually having that dialogue in your head about what healthy looks like and what unhealthy looks like. In the context, by the way, of friendships and family relationships and work relationships, it's all the same. If you can really get versed in that, then instead of experiencing your life and your relationship in emotions where you're like shocked at the anger you saw, instead you can say that was volatility. Instead of being frustrated that every time you get a job, your husband or your partner does something to make you leave that job or to, then you understand that's actually sabotage. It's not just me being frustrated. That was sabotage. You understand what manipulation is. So when you see it, you got to be able to see it first. Once you can see the behaviors, the dream is then you either fix them or you get out before it's abuse and before you're more trapped and before you're so isolated. So I do think it starts with just understanding healthy and unhealthy relationships. So what are those early warning signs? And Rebecca, how did they show up for you? Well, one of the things that I wanted to go off of what Katie had said was autonomy. And one of the most famous lines that I've used throughout my story was my abuser said to me, I recognize I did not allow you autonomy. If we reconcile, I will allow you autonomy. So he's going to give me permission to be who I'm supposed to be. He's going to give me permission to be me. One of the things that I recognize, and I'm telling it because it's so hindsight for me, is I was not allowed to have any autonomy with money. I was not allowed to have any autonomy with finances. I was not even allowed to have an account of my own, which meant all money went together in the same account, which means all the money was his every dime, every penny, everything that he had made was his. Everything that he owned was his. Everything that he bought was his because every ounce of the money was his. And so not having that autonomy with finances meant that I really had nothing. And I totally understand why so many women go back because of the finances, simply because there is nothing. There's absolutely nothing. So I highly suggest any woman has her own bank account. While there can be a joint one, and that's fine, 
You have your own account. You've got your own savings. You have to have your own finances, your own money. It's an absolute must. And that's something that I I learned really, really late. I just want to point out that I listened to your words and you said, I was not allowed to have my own account. That's just unbelievable. And it's a sign of where you were in this relationship. When I knew I was going to get divorced, all of our money was in a joint account. And when I knew I was going to get divorced, I opened my own account. And I told him, by the way, I was like, I'm opening my own account. I knew I wasn't hiding anything. But this idea that we have to be allowed to have an account of our own is just mind-boggling. And Katie, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this many, many times. What are the other real red flags that you see? Well, you got me thinking about the word permission. When you feel like you have to ask permission for everything, even away from autonomy, that is a bad sign. But I mean, I think on the other side, things like possessiveness, when you're viewed as mine, my wife, my partner, my spouse, whatever it may be, a healthy relationship is two individuals who love being together, but who also very much retain their individuality. It's not a possessiveness relationship. It's not that someone owns another, and that is a red flag. Volatility is a huge flag, and I think it's one of the ones that's most frequently explained away. And what I mean by that is somebody will have an outburst over something very small. And instead, it's a couple different things. They might say, I only did that because you did this, which is gaslighting, making it feel like you're responsible for their behavior. Or maybe it's, I had too much to drink. But excuses are made versus calling it what it is, which is volatility. And I think that volatility, it can't be underestimated how much, and Rebecca, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but when people are in abusive relationships, They live calculating every move and every step in anticipation of what it's going to unleash from their partner. And that could be volatility, or it could be sabotage, or it could be another one. But they start thinking ahead, what am I going to do based on what response is it going to elicit from my partner and trying to avoid the big explosion or the big negative response, whatever it is. So Those are some of the signs that I would point out. But again, on our website, joinonelove.org, we have our 10 signs with examples there if people want to dive in further. What kind of conversations can we have in the beginning of a relationship that will help us assess how our partner feels about having a financially independent partner? I mean, I think that's more important than ever. Women are breadwinners more than ever before. And sometimes that really leads to trouble. Yeah, I think the conversations we have in the early parts of our relationships are, (laughs) they just are so vital. When you're first getting together, there's this little tiptoeing around that you're doing as you get to know each other, where I do think a lot of things that might spark something in your gut about, oh, that felt weird. You may suppress it versus talking about it. And some of that can be boundary related, like say, and we work with a lot of young people to say your new boyfriend says, I don't like those pictures you just posted on Instagram. I need them down. Like that's boundaries. That's possessiveness. There's a lot of things right there that the goal should be not to just do it or not to immediately break up, but to say, listen, when you tell me that it makes me feel like you're not giving me my individuality or my, I have my right to post what I want to post. And I'd love to talk to you more about this and establish early in our relationship 
that we can talk about some of these things. The most frequent thing I hear from folks who have gotten out of abusive relationships is that there were just so many things they were uncomfortable raising, and then they just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what you really want to avoid. I think when it comes to your finances, a balanced relationship is one where you can listen to each other and talk to each other about how you want to spend your money. What are you doing together? What are you doing separately? Where nobody has veto power. This takes place a lot in a lot of different situations, but even like the organizations you're part of, the social events, does one partner decide all the time where you spend your money around those things? Does one partner decide where you go on vacation? Does one partner decide? That's a red flag. So early on learning to say, we should mutually decide on a lot of this stuff. And we should expect that it's a healthy thing to maintain some individuality in our financial relationship too. It's just practice, learning to have these conversations that can feel like, oh, icky or uncomfortable to have. If you start them early, they just become the way that you do things. Yeah. I'm wondering, Rebecca, what you would say to someone, and I guess this is a version of helping our friends, what would you say to someone who you suspected was facing financial abuse or abuse in general, but wasn't aware that it was abuse. I think that we've all known people that we suspect are in abusive situations, but we also suspect they might not know it. How do we help? You know, that's hard. It's hard because a lot of times people like me like to be rescued. They want to be rescued, but are absolutely terrified. Simply terrified. Terrified of the response. Terrified of what it's going to look like. There's a stigma to domestic violence. There really is. There's a huge stigma to it. But what you need to realize if you're going through it is that we're not Academy Award-winning actresses. We don't hide it well. And it's visible and people can see it. And if people start throwing out breadcrumbs, start following them. Start following the breadcrumbs. Establish an account, even if you have to do it in secret. Do an account, cash the check, put the money in the other account. Don't deposit the money. I know it sounds crazy, but when I went to the grocery store, I would withdraw 20 to 30, maybe $40 cash as I went to the grocery store and just started building it up a little bit piece by piece by piece and just kind of withdrawing some things I just wanted cash on hand. There wasn't really much of a question about it. I was not financially savvy until much later, until he was literally wiping out my paychecks. I mean, I wasn't even permitted to have a job until 2019. I was, but they were sabotaged, like Katie had said. At a three-month mark, my jobs were sabotaged. So I only really had a couple jobs that I could hold for three months. And knowing the job that I have now, I was there for three months and I knew it was going to be sabotaged and I knew I either had to allow the sabotage to happen or hold and that's it. We're done. But even if you have to do it in secret, get that account, have your friends take the money for you if you're afraid to do it. Have somebody else establish an account in your name if you're afraid to do it. You have to start getting something somewhere because I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing. How did you have the courage to talk to your boss that first time? And can you share some of the things that people did do that were helpful for you, if any? Sure. I was just a temporary employee and I was looking for full-time employment. And I was asked what was my biggest failure. And I said my marriage. And it just kind of stunned them because what you could see from the outside 
was, oh my gosh, well-to-do family in this town. They've got the big expensive cars, the biggest packages, you know, the, the Cadillacs, the Yukons, and they had whatever. They had it all. And it was just all a lie. It was something that shocked people. Some people it shocked. Other people were like, it's about time. We knew this was going on, but nobody said anything. A lot of people were really afraid. People are afraid. You know, some people are really bold and some people attack it head on, but others just sat there and watched and they watched. They're like, well, we would be here if we had to pick up the pieces, but they just watched. There was so much control. I mean, I, I couldn't even get out. I couldn't even go to a, a girl's night out without significant repercussions and significant issues that would arise from going and then coming home. So it's a struggle. It's really, really a struggle. It is so hard to help somebody get out and it's not that they don't want to get out. The terror is real. It's very, very real. I know that you probably have so many anecdotes and stories. And I mean, you have 20 years of this, so you have an incredibly long history. Where would you send a friend who was where you were in 2019? Where would you send them for resources, for escape, for help? Most areas, most cities, towns have domestic abuse hotlines. That is a good start. They have advocates there who will show up every step of the way. I have an advocate. She calls me once a week. She has showed up to every court date. She's been a part all the way. Pastors really are a good resource. I didn't have a great experience at first, but the last place, they're a huge resource. Church affiliates, some of them really do step in because they absolutely despise abuse. More and more churches now are more understanding of what happens in abusive situations. And in, in the case of, of my church, they 100% supported me in the divorce, which is not what you hear from a church typically, but things are changing. Things are really changing. I highly suggest you get to a divorce attorney who specializes in domestic violence. Are they cheap? No, they are not cheap, but are they worth it? Absolutely. 100%. Do you have to take out a loan? Yes. Are you gonna be able to pay it back? Who knows? do it. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm talking, that's the reality. Do it. Do not be afraid. Do it. Protect your life. Get the best that you can get and get help. You know, I would generally steer away from some of the court appointed simply because I have not experienced the savvy behind them. I went to the biggest and baddest I also suggest finding somebody, a counselor, who specializes in domestic violence. They just picked out all the lies. They picked out the deception. They picked out what is truth and what is untruth. Because when you're in an abusive situation, you have no idea what's true. You have no idea. You're drowning. You're in shark-infested water and you're drowning and you don't know where the life preserver is. And sometimes they have to pull you along. But those are the places where I would go first. Does it cost money? Without a doubt. And you don't have it. And I understand it. And I was there. You don't have it. But it's worth it. How are you today? I'm good. I'm in a really, really good place. I'm, I'm in a very good place. I'm financially more independent, much more savvy. Even though I was shaking in my boots, I had to stand strong and just say no. 
It was the hardest thing I think I've ever done. Hardest couple years of my life, but the most rewarding because I am actually allowed to be me. I'm allowed to have the autonomy that I'm allowed to have. And, you know, I think one of the things that I want to share out to people before you get in a relationship, and this was part of what my problem is, and, and a couple people that I've spoken with who've gone through similar situations, is that we really didn't know who we were when we got into these relationships. And we got into these relationships with pretty dominant men, a little bit older than us. They seemed to have the power. They seemed to know what they were doing. And I was young. I didn't know who I was. I hadn't really discovered myself yet. I haven't even fulfilled dreams yet. And I found myself catering to his needs and catering to his wants and changing who I was bit by bit to meld into this other person. And I completely lost who I was. So for the past almost three years, I've been reestablishing who I am. It's actually really exciting. The joy has returned. The life has returned. The love, the ability to love and the ability to be loved. That was the hardest thing that I had to overcome. And it's pretty amazing. It's on this side, it's pretty amazing. That's fantastic. I can see your breathing. And it's really, really nice to see. Katie, from your perspective, other resources, other places that people can go, whether we're in abusive relationships or whether we want to help others? Yeah. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is an incredible resource. You can call. It's anonymous. You call. You tell them your zip code. You tell them a little bit about what you need, and they can direct you to local resources in your community that can help you. And that can include resources to help in financially abusive situations. So that's always my general go-to if you don't know who to go to locally. But as Rebecca says, there's lots of folks locally too. I did want to say like this role of the friend is really important. There's a dance that you do as a friend where you lean in and you lean out. I think in these situations, a lot of people end up, I end up talking to a fair amount of people who get introduced to me because a friend is concerned that they're in a bad situation. It's not my job to lecture. It's not my job to dictate. It's my job to listen. It's my job to understand. It's my job to encourage them. A good advocate will also say, you know, you've got this. It's your decision to make. But there's a process by which when a person is regaining their footing, which is what Rebecca has been going through for the last three years, you need to push, lean in and lean out to give them the room to learn to do it on their own. So you as a friend, I've had situations where I want to call the domestic violence facility myself and pull out all the resources and research the lawyers and do this, that, and then deliver that to my friend or this person that I know. I can do that but they need to choose that they're ready. And part of what will make them be ready is knowing that you're there regardless. You're not disappointing me if you don't call any of those places, but you know I'm here for you. So that lean and lean out for a person on this who's listening right now, trying to think about how that plays out with the person you're concerned about, I think that's one of the most important immediate things you can do is just understand that you might not get an immediate response, but by leaning in and leaning out, you can help that person get closer to where they need to be. And one other thing that I want to bounce off of that is most of us in the domestic violence situation, we don't even know what we need. We don't know what we want. We don't know what we're looking for. We don't even know what to ask. Most of us have been so socially isolated and so isolated from reality that we truly don't even know what direction to go to. And one of the most beneficial things that 
happened with me is, is my best friend did call her cousin who's in the sheriff's department. She talked to him. He said, call this magistrate. We called the magistrate. I didn't say a word. She did all the talking, but she asked questions. She didn't say my friend. She didn't say my friend here. She said, what would you do in this situation? How do we address this? So she knew the questions to ask that I didn't even know how to ask because I could not even think straight. We are so jumbled and we are so disjointed when you're coming out of something like this that sometimes what you need is that friend who can listen to you just dump everything and be able to pull it all back together. So you need to have that one person who's able to funnel it out, which is why I recommended the counselor because they can do it really well. The friends are really great. Sometimes they wanna fiercely protect you and that doesn't necessarily help the situation. But in this case, my best friend was able to sit down and just listen to me and she was able to put the pieces together like a jigsaw puzzle, like this piece goes with this and this piece goes with this and able to tie what was happening together so that we had a story, we had something to work with. And by her actually calling the magistrate, talking to the magistrate and asking questions about the domestic violence, I learned so much about how my case actually was domestic violence because it took me a very long time to reconcile the fact that it was domestic violence, that that was one of the things that was most beneficial. And especially with the finances, that was something that was touched on over and over and over and over again. Do you even have your own car? Is, is he gonna take your car away because all the cars are in his name now? He's got possession of everything. Do you have this safe? Is this safe? Are your belongings safe? So we need that. We need that. And I think that that's true of financial information in so many different aspects of our lives, but particularly in emergencies like you were in and emergencies like the people in abusive relationships face every single day. Katie Hood from the One Love Foundation. Rebecca, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so glad we had it. I think that you will have helped an awful lot of our listeners. And I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for having us. If someone out there listening right now is recognizing some of the things that Rebecca has been talking about, or we've been talking about, I think the first step is just take a deep breath and then reach out for resources. And if you need help with a friend, like Rebecca said, get help, but there's resources like the National Domestic Violence Hotline. We have information. Joinonelove.org is our website. There's information there. The Allstate Foundation is a partner of ours, has extensively invested in financial abuse information and, and education. So I, there are resources there. Just take a deep breath if this conversation today made you recognize your situation a little more, I guess, and know that there's a way to get out. And Rebecca is a perfect example of the other side, which is awesome. Awesome. Thank you both so much for an incredible conversation. We have gone longer than we usually do with our interviews. And so I just want everybody who's listening to know that you can look for a separate mailbag to drop later in the week. I do want to mention one more time that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. When the market is uncertain, when life is uncertain, it's more important than ever to have a plan for your savings. And that's where Fidelity comes in. They will work with you to create a savings and investment strategy and help you to fine tune it whenever life changes. Plus, they have tips and online tools like their planning and guidance center that can help you meet your short and long-term goals. Again, you can visit fidelity.com to learn more. 
A big thank you to Katie Hood of the One Love Foundation, to Rebecca for opening up today to us on this important topic. I am incredibly inspired by both of these women. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Keep your mental health muscles strong with the Emotional Badass Podcast. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, psychotherapist, and life coach. The Emotional Badass Podcast is your place to learn the mental health tips and tricks you need to build emotional resilience and practice mindfulness and gratitude. Join me every week for new episodes to reach a more grounded state of well-being as life brings its challenges. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts.